if Easter as well as Christmas is something that, if that's where you get excited about the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you're missing part, a central part, of what the message of Christ is about. Uh, our conviction is that, that Christmas and Easter should be lived every day of our life and can be celebrated every day of our life. And uh, something we want to get up in the morning and live for and go to bed at night. And throughout the day we live and eat and think and breathe it. It's good, though, to take times at, at certain times of the year when we just decide to recognize this and, and to concentrate a little more intensely on it. But the point of the whole thing is that this is life itself. This is what we're all about. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about the resurrection. We're going to take a break from our normal uh, Ephesians study that we've been going through for the last eight months and uh, talk about the resurrection. And the passage I want to use to do that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The main text I'm going to speak on is, is, uh, is found in the bulletin, but I also want to read a portion of Scripture prior to that. Whenever I come out here with a can of pop, I always feel like I'm being very commercial, you know, or something like that, like I own stock in Pepsi or something, but I don't. It's just that my water is getting warm, so I decided to buy it. We got a pop machine back there. Uh, <clears throat> Ah, there's no life like the preaching life. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I, I'm going to start with verse 3, and then I'll get to the passage that we have printed in the bulletin. Listen very carefully to this. Paul's writing about 15 to 20 years after uh, the time of uh, Christ's life. And he says this, For what I received I passed on to you as being of first importance. This is the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though there are some who have died, he says, fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born or born out of season. And now we come to the passages that are printed in your bulletin. But if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, or actually can be translated worse than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, uh, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sin. And those who are dead in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But, here's the Easter message, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have, who, have, who have fallen asleep. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, uh, the, the, the resurrection power of your life is something that many people here this morning walk with on a daily basis. But I would pray, Lord, this morning that your spirit, which is your resurrection power, would be present here in the speaking of this word. Even powerful enough, Lord, to confront those who maybe do not have a faith in you, who are not yet convinced in your resurrection, and maybe who have not yet put in their trust in you. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be present to confront those of us who are already believers, but to reprioritize our life to make you center. And I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be present to confront those who do not believe, to bring them to the point where they would put their trust in you and thereby be saved. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're, we're all about uh, speaking the truth here at Woodland Hills. We've, uh, we're, you know, ideas that if it's true, let it be true and say it out loud. And last week I told you what a carnal, vile person I had been that week uh, just because it was a true thing. I had blitzed out on my car and, and so, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't do that. I did do that. Well, I'm going to tell you something else uh, that uh, maybe will get some of you thinking I'm a little strange, uh, but I, I'm going to risk it because I love you. It, I, you know, and don't think I'm a morbid Jeffrey Dahmer type or something. I'm just going to be honest with you. But ever since I was a kid, I've had this obsession with death, a weird fascination with death. Maybe it's because my mom died when I was two and that made a real tra traumatic impression on me. or I don't know, but from as long as, as, as early as I can remember, I've had this weird, uh, I don't think it's weird, but other people do, this, this uh, obsession with, with death. I just think about it a lot. I remember I had some weird experiences uh, with it when I was uh, young. I, when my grandmother died, I, I was just, I went to her funeral. I was about four or five years old, and she was there in the coffin, and I asked my stepmother if I could kiss her, and she said, sure. So I kissed her on the forehead, and I just had this shock. It was like, it all of a sudden occurred to me that she's not uh, alive anymore, and she was cold and clammy, and I screamed. I went, yuck! And I ran out of there, you know? It was kind of embarrassing. But I was, I was like, freaked out that my grandmother was in the situation. I, I remember, I never kissed one of these, but I remember being obsessed with dead animals. It, 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 I would never kill them, okay? I wasn't like one of those, actually, okay, we did, but, <laughs> but you usually, <laughs> well, I was this seven-year-old kid, but, but, um, but I, I, I would find dead animals and I'd just wonder about them. I would just like be puzzled. What is it, what is death? What is death? It always struck me as like the most important thing to think about when I, when I got a little older. Now, this is where it really gets strange. Uh, but I, I, I used to like to take walks, and I still actually do, though I haven't done it recently, but I, I take walks in graveyards. To me, it, it, just, it, like, it, it, it just does something to my brain that nothing else does. It makes me really be aware of how odd existence is. It's a strange thing. And the reality that I'm going to die, I'm going to die. If the Lord doesn't come back, I'm going to die, and you're going to die. There's only two things that are, are certain in life, and, and really we're both celebra we're celebrating both of them here this morning. Death and taxes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to end up six feet below the ground just like you. And that just strikes me as something that you've got to come to grips with. And I used to sometimes take my dates in high school out to graveyards. I figured since I like graveyards, they must too. <laughs> Come with me. <laughs> I never went over too good, and I kept on doing it. I don't know why. I, I finally took one person out to a graveyard, and, and she didn't run away, and I ended up marrying her. So I, it's like, this is my type of gal. So Shelly and I went to a graveyard once on a date. Um, so I doubt that that's what won her over. But it's just... My impression has been that, that, that this is like the all-important question. You know, if you're, if, you're, uh, building a, if you're building something, it's all important that you know what the end result is. What are you building towards? And if you're writing a story, you've got to know how the plot ends because you're building towards that story. And it seems to me that that's the case in life. The most important thing about life is how does this thing end? What's the punchline? Where are we going to? What's the meaning of the whole thing? The end result is what gives in the interpretation to everything that leads up to the end result. But here's the thing that freaks me out. If death, if things are as they really seem, if death is the end, if we all end up and the elements 
of nature have the last word on us and we all end up down six feet below the ground, then it seems to me, in fact, it's perfectly certain to me, that life does not have a point. It is not leading up to anything. The ultimate thing to be said about life is that it's sad. It's tragic. Your loved ones you'll never see again. And all that you hope for and dream for and think that you accomplish and try to achieve in life, all the things that you think are so important, it all goes down six feet with you. Nothing lasts forever. And in the end, when the final curtain falls on your life, it doesn't make a bit of a difference whether you've been a Mother Teresa or whether you've been a Hitler. It doesn't make a bit of difference what you've accomplished or haven't accomplished. Sometimes we, 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 we think that, you know, if we just make a difference in our kids' lives, then, then our life has meaning. Well, your kids die too, and their kids die too, and finally the whole society dies, and then the earth will be absorbed in the sun, and there'll be a supernova, and finally the whole universe will grow cold, dead, black, and abysmal. And then what difference will it have made whether you have done anything at all? It's all meaningless. It's absurd. It's going nowhere. It's like Macbeth says in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying absolutely nothing. You ever see some of these derelicts on the, on the street corners, you know, they're, and they're arguing with themselves or the wind or something, or people who pass by them? Somebody's just sit and listen. They just kind of eavesdrop on their argument. You know, they're, they're like, I tell you, and you, you said, she said, I forget it, I'll tell you, and then, and then you, oh no, you know, you listen a while, and it's full of sound and fury and passion and vigor, but it's not making a point. It's going nowhere. And that is exactly what life's all about. We live, we, we think things are important, we try to overcome good with evil, we build things, we have dreams, and it's all like the band Kansas says, dust in the wind, it comes to absolutely nothing if death is the end. And the only reason that we don't see that and feel that clearly is because we don't think deep enough about it. We get distracted, we think that our job and that our family and our friendships and the, the, our good deeds give our life some meaning, but all as they are, if death is the end, all those things can be said. The best you can say about them is that they're momentary distractions from reality because the real world, if death is the end, is that it doesn't make a bit of difference whether you did those things or not. And if you see that for what it is, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning, folks. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there once in my life where I really thought that's what reality was all about. And I'm telling you, it is depressing. The University of Minnesota, my first year, I'd been a Christian for about a year, and then I, uh, I lost my faith, got all screwed up for about nine months, and came to the conclusion that, in fact, death is the end of all things. And I can't tell you how miserable that will make you. I tried to go back into my old lifestyle, you know, and party down or whatever, and it just repulsed me because these people don't even know how meaningless and empty their lives are. They're just trying to lower themselves to the consciousness of an animal so they can for forget the futility of their existential nihilism. Oh, Man, I wasn't that poetic about it, though. And walking home from school one night, I remember just thinking to myself, why, do I do, why, why am I studying? What am I trying to do? I, I have these plans and all these dreams and things I want to accomplish, and it just doesn't make a bit of difference. Remember, I sat in a cafe one afternoon. Actually, I started about 9 in the morning, and I didn't leave till about 10 that night when they closed the cafe down. Skipped classes that day. Because I was reading a book. The book was called The Myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus is a Greek hero, and the book was by Albert Camus, an atheist. And I read it because the professor told me, I'd asked him, you know, what's the point of it all? What's it all about? And he says, read this book, and this will tell you. And so I read this book. And the theme of the whole book is, the question he says is this. The only, the only really important question 
is whether or not we should commit suicide. And the basic point of the book is this. Albert Camus, an atheist, says that life is, in fact, meaningless. It is, in fact, absurd. It, in fact, has no point. In fact, if you were rational about things, you just might kill yourself. But, he says, by not killing, our, by not killing ourselves, we're not giving into life. We're, we're, not, we're not letting life defeat us. We're rebelling against the absurdity of life, and that gives our, our, our life a little bit of meaning. Just by sneering at the wind, spitting into the wind, even though you know you can't win, playing the ball game, refusing to give up, even though you know that in the end the ball game is going to win, doing that gives your life a little bit of meaning, a little bit of rebellious meaning. And I thought to myself, if that is the best you can do, we are in serious trouble. That's meaning in life? Living in the face of meaninglessness is supposed to give your life meaning? And the despair was there. It's a joke. Paul says that if Christ isn't risen, we are to be pitied. And we are. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, we are to be pitied. The whole thing, this morning, what we're talking about is really the most important topic you could ever address. Because it determines how you look at life. Whether you look at life as being, as uh, Sartre and others, Albert Camus say, it's utterly meaningless, or whether, in fact, you think that this story has got a point to it. And then maybe finding out what the point of the story is. So what I want to do this morning is address this question, is the resurrection true or not? Is it real? Or is this some fantasy for people who just can't handle the gutsy, sad, tragic reality that life is meaningless? Maybe it's all a cop-out. What is it? Is it true or not? And what I want to do this morning very quickly is to make three observations, which I believe prove the resurrection to be, without a shadow of doubt, true. And I want to do it for two reasons. I want to do it for you here this morning who maybe have not yet accepted the truth of the resurrection, and I'm going to try to convince you that it's true. And I want, to I want you to listen to me very carefully. That you might come to put your faith in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And for believers, those who are already convinced, I want to do this for, for, for this reason. It's good for us to re-examine the foundation of our faith, to know why we believe. The Bible tells us to know why we believe what we believe. But also to challenge us to see how central it is. To reprioritize our life, perhaps, to make the resurrected Lord, the one who is in fact the one who gives our life all of its meaning. Three observations I want to make. The first observation I've already touched on, and it's this. If, in fact, death is the end, and if, in fact, then nothing matters and life is meaningless, why do we humans, if we're honest, have such a hard time accepting that? Why do we wish that that was not true? Why, as, as Frankel says in his great book, Man's Search for Meaning, why do we crave meaning? If in fact, life, nature, the totality of what is, is a meaningless affair, and we are just natural products of this meaningless affair, how is it that we have come about to long for something? As the, at the core of our being, to long for meaning, when in fact, meaning is not a part of the nature of things. Think of it like this, if you went down to the Amazon, if you went down to the Amazon and found a bunch of Amazonians, or whatever you'd call them, down in the Amazon where it never gets below 90 degrees, and these Amazon people were talking about snow, and they were craving snow and longing for it to snow. In fact, they wanted to go skiing, and they were making skis, just waiting for it to snow. And then you ask them, well, has it ever snowed down here? They go, no. Will it ever snow down here? They go, no. Well, that'd be odd, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would certainly be odd. You need to explain that. How do these people living in an environment where there was no snow, never shall be any snow, how do they come to know about snow? Worse, how do they come to crave snow? It's an odd thing. 
And that is exactly the situation that human beings are in if, in fact, there is nothing beyond the grave. How did we, living in an environment where there is no meaning, where there never has been any meaning, come to long for meaning? Where did we ever even get the idea that life was supposed to be meaningful? How did, how did that even occur to us? Let alone, how do we come to crave it? You can't, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning unless you think it's going to make a difference. It's hard to do anything unless you think it's going to make a difference. Some of you know that. You've dealt with depression. But if death ends the whole thing, then as a matter of fact, nothing makes any difference. But now how did the world that is meaningless and absurd just evolve by time and chance beings such as ourselves who long for something that the world could never, ever give? That is very odd. We are like fish that evolved in the middle of the Sahara Desert gasping for water, and there's never, ever been water. Never could be water. How did that come about? We're just like, well, I wish I had some water. Flopping around. And there's no water. The Sahara mocks us, though it's impersonal. Longing for what nature could never give. Find me another instance in the world where, where beings long for something that nature can't give it. You know, you, you long for, for you, you get thirsty, and, and, and there's water. And you hunger and there's food. You have sex drives and, and there's sex. You want to breathe and thankfully there's air. Because nature doesn't, nature quote unquote, doesn't produce beings that have needs that it can't meet. That's absurd to think that. And yet here we are, human beings, longing for something that nature does not have, could not have, never shall have, and we want it at the innermost core of our being. Scientists tell us that nature abhors a vacuum. And that's true. But then you tell me how nature created a vacuum when it created me and created you. Because at the core of our heart, there is a vacuum there. And you long for stuff, you desire stuff that the world can never, ever give. That's like a bird being afraid of heights. How would, would nature create a being that's supposed to fly, that can fly, that has all the equipment to fly, and then make the whole species afraid of heights? That's crazy. Or making cows needing to eat grass, but then hating the color of grass or something. How did nature produce us who need to have meaning, and yet there is no meaning. The only answer, folks, if you look at it carefully and if you look within your heart, and get out of your mind the, the momentary distractions that you think give your life some meaning, you see that the fact that you desire eternal life shows you that you're capable of eternal life. You wouldn't long for it unless it was a possibility. The very fact that you long for meaning shows that life is supposed to be meaningful. And so there is something in every, every person in, in this congregation this morning, there's something in the depths of your heart that says yes to, this, to the resurrection story. You maybe in your mind don't want to believe it, but your heart is saying there's something about it that's true because it's like you've been thirsty for water all your life and all of a sudden you're starting to smell water. You, start, you can almost taste it. You're approaching water. Your heart is saying drink. Drink of the water of Jesus Christ. And I beckon you to do that. Two other things, two, ob two other observations I want to make this morning. The second one is this. If this story, in fact, is not true, if this is just a piece of wishful thinking, then how do you explain the verse that we read here this morning? Don't treat this like scripture right now. I'm not trying to argue from quoting the Bible. I'm just trying to treat Paul's letter to the Corinthians like you treat any letter in the first century. And the question is this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead... Someone please explain to me how it is that Paul thought he rose from the dead, claimed to see him as a matter of fact. Peter thought he rose from the dead, claimed to see him as a matter of fact. John and James and all the other apostles thought he rose from the dead, they claimed to see him as a matter of fact. 500 brothers thought he rose from the dead, they claimed to see him as a matter of fact. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, someone please tell me how it is that all these people so quickly got mistaken. 
How are you going to account for the fact that these people had this conviction in the core of their being to the point where they were willing to lay down their lives and die for this conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? The only explanation is that, as a matter of fact, he did rise from the dead, and that's why they thought he saw, they saw him. Now, maybe you could say, and a lot of people say, this is, the most, this is the most common explanation for the resurrection. It was a hallucination. They were hallucinating. People hallucinate. They see Elvis Presley here and there, right? Yeah, I just, just watch uh, sightings sometimes. You ever watch that show, Sightings? You know, people see things all the time. Read National Enquirer, some of these other, or Global, or Sun, or these other crazy magazines. People see things all the time, so look, at it. it was a hallucination. There you go, hallucination. A lot of the top scholars in New Testament scholarship today go with this theory. Burton Mack, John Demon Crossan. They had a vision, vision. But it's all something that occurs in the head. Now, just very briefly, think about this for a second. Is that a sound explanation? I want to submit to you that it's a little bit weak. For one thing, how, many time, how often does a hallucination change a person's life and cause them... How often do people lay down their lives for a hallucination? A hallucination is something you thought you saw, maybe. Maybe it's very convincing, but would you die for it? A second thing is this. Do large groups of people usually have the same hallucination? I mean, if I'm sitting here right now and all of a sudden I go, there he is. I see him. He's right there. Jesus. He's materializing. And then you guys see him. Well, in this context, you might say that I'm, you know, not crazy, but maybe you think I was crazy. Maybe you already think that. I don't know. But in any case, you could, you could explain that as a hallucination, perhaps. But if all of a sudden we all, we got about 800 people here, I guess, 800 people. If we all saw Jesus Christ materialize at the same time, he looks the same, there he is right in the middle of us. If somebody comes in the room and says, well, you're all hallucinating, we're going to go, get a life, buddy, because... 800 people don't hallucinate about the, same, about the same thing, nor do 500 people, and it certainly doesn't change the lives of all the people who see it. The hallucination explanation just doesn't cut the mustard when you're talking about large groups of people. Jesus Christ appeared to the, to the apostles on a number of occasions, to the people on the, on the mount, the 500 here, to the women, and so on. The, hallucina the hallucination explanation just doesn't work. It gets worse if, what, what if, what if, what if, what if. We all, Jesus Christ appears to us, and then he says to us, hey, let's go out to eat. So we all go down to McDonald's. We flood the place. Jesus is there in the midst of us, and we have, have dinner together. And we do that for the next uh, five Sunday mornings. Now if somebody comes in and says, man, you got a hallucination going on here, we're going to really say you are a bozo, because hallucinations don't eat with people. They don't fellowship with people. They don't talk with people. They don't last over a long period of time. But the problem is, folks, the gospel records portray the relationship that the disciples had with the risen Lord Jesus Christ as exactly that. They ate with Jesus Christ. He showed up. They had breakfast together. They conversed with him. He taught them things. They, for 40 days, the Bible says, they had this relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. A large number of them did in different places and different times. That's just one heck of a hallucination, folks. And in fact, it is a hallucination. But maybe that's enough to tell us that it's not a hallucination. One final fact. If this is an hallucination, how do you explain the empty tomb? To have an hallucination is one thing. To explain how the tomb got empty is another. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he just assumes that Christ was buried, then he rose from the dead. There's no one in the tomb. Now, if I have a hallucination of, of uh, my mother or something, or, you know, I think she rose from the dead, I'll go check her tomb. But no one in the early church ever argued that the tomb was not empty. Peter, on the, on the day of Pentecost, stands up and he preaches to the crowd of Jews, a hostile audience. And he talks about how Jesus Christ was this public figure. 
He did miracles. He did these teachings. He had this character, and then he died on the cross. But unlike David, he says, unlike David, whose tomb is still with us, the tomb of Jesus Christ is now empty. And this is something that anybody who had the least inclination could easily check out by taking a 15-minute walk and looking uh, um, just outside of Jerusalem where they buried Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel authors tell us whose tomb he was in, Joseph of Arimathea. Who was, a, who was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin in Jewish culture was something like the Supreme Court in our own culture. This is not some kind of private, obscure thing that they're pulling off here, folks. Jesus Christ was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man that everybody could have easily have checked out, and yet, the thing is, is that nobody, not even the opponents of Christianity, claim that the tomb was not empty. They agree on this one fact. How does the hallucination hypothesis explain that? How does it explain that? The only explanation, folks is that this wasn't any hallucination. And the tomb was empty because Jesus left it. If that's not true, what's your other explanation? Of course, you might argue, and this is the third observation, you might argue, you could argue this way, you could say that, well, they, they, they conspired together. Since you can't explain it away by admitting that the disciples were sincere because the hallucination hypothesis doesn't work, maybe they weren't sincere. And this is the other option that people generally go to if you're going to try to dismiss the resurrection. Maybe, they, maybe it was a conspiracy. They all got together, and for whatever reasons, they decided that they wanted to pull this thing off. So they got together, concocted the story, maybe they stole the body or something like that, and then spent the rest of their life preaching a lie. But it's a big hoax. It's a big fraud. It's a sham. You Sconfield in the Passover plot tries to argue this way. You've got to ask yourself some serious questions here. Like, for example, why? Why would they do this? <laughs> it's kind of an obvious question. Before you can pin a lie on somebody, you usually have to have a motive. What was the motive? It's not like these guys, after, and the women that were involved in this whole thing, it's not like after they came up with this theory, they all of a sudden got a lot of money, right? Uh, they didn't drive around in Rolls Royces and have Cadillacs and have nice palaces and show up on TV and wear Rolex watches and have people giving offerings all the time. They didn't have a lot to gain by this thing. In fact, they didn't have anything to gain. In fact, they lost a whole lot by preaching this. They spent the rest of their life preaching the message that Jesus Christ was, was risen from the dead to the point where they got themselves killed for it. Why would they lie about this kind of thing? And are we to believe, are we to believe that of the 513 people that are mentioned in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 alone, and Paul's list is not exhaustive, but of those 513, none of them cracked? None of them broke the, the conspiracy? No one ever slipped up? They're being fed the lions, but they keep their mouths shut? They're being burned at the stake, but everyone, all 513, keep their mouths shut? I don't think so. Conspiracies are pretty hard to keep a lid on. The conspiracy theory just does not work. Even if they'd wanted to steal the body, it's unlikely that they'd, been, that, that, that they'd be able to. The, tomb, the, the stone that covered up the tombs, the crossalia tombs, that were the type that Jesus was buried in, typically weighed one and a half to two tons. And that's not easy to push away. It's really hard to push away if you don't want guards to notice you. Uh, the end result is that trying to say that this is a conspiracy of some sort, trying to say that it's a hallucination of some sort, just doesn't explain what needs to be explained away. A final thing is this. If the disciples were making this whole story up, they're fabricating the whole thing. If this story is made up, these people were very bad storytellers. If their goal was to sell Jesus Christ as the Son of God, though they knew that he wasn't the Son of God, if that was their purpose, they did a very, very poor job of it. I mean, these people 
must have been extremely stupid, first of all, for telling a lie and getting themselves killed when they had nothing to gain, but then telling this story as their lie. Because there's a lot of things in the Gospels that just don't fit if what they're trying to do is give a bunch of propaganda. For example, for example, if you wanted to sell Jesus Christ as the Son of God, even though you know it's not true, but you wanted to just make, give people the impression of that, the last thing in the world, you're trying to convince people that this is God now. Are you going to make up the story that on the cross, Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the last thing in the world you'd want to say. We today have to try to explain that. Well, Jesus Christ was God, yes. He was hanging on the cross, but then he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it's kind of tough. Okay, that's a good theological question. But the point is this. The only motive that the disciple authors would have had for putting that piece of information in the Gospels is because it really happened. They'd have no motive for lying about this. Or here's another point. All the, the resurrection accounts have women showing up at the tomb first. In fact, the whole story revolves around women. Now, in first century Jewish culture, you've got to know this about women. They were regarded as having zero credibility. And I mean zero credibility. They weren't allowed to testify in court. Jewish men thought that Jewish women, or women in general actually, were incurable liars. They, 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 they never told the truth. If a woman saw a man kill somebody, her testimony couldn't indict the man. If two women saw a man kill somebody, their testimony couldn't indict the man. They had to have a male who also saw it for their testimony to count for anything. Oh, sexism to the extreme, but here's the point. Here we have gospel accounts. Where? The men, the disciples who are supposedly writing and making up the story, they're scared chickens. They're, they're locked up in the closet. Who has the courage to go to the tomb? It's the women. The women go there. They find the tomb empty. They meet Jesus first, and they go and tell the disciples who are scared, locked up in a closet, what has happened here. This is, 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 first of all, it's going to really indict the disciples. It makes them look very, very bad. But secondly, if you're trying to sell a story, this does not add credibility in Jewish culture. The only motive that the disciples would have had for saying that the women were there, the only motive they'd have for saying that they were cowards, like the only motive they'd have for saying Jesus Christ felt God forsaken on the cross is because that, in fact, is the way it happens. The story smacks of truth because it's got all the elements of truth. It contains elements that would be the last thing in the world that somebody fabricating an account would put in there. In fact, the accounts are filled with a bunch of detail that you wouldn't expect if people are fabricating them. Well, this is the final point. If you're making up a story, I mean, what historians look for in ancient literature is very frequently whether it contains what's called incidental details. Details that aren't germane to the main point. Because eyewitnesses, when they tell stories, tend to throw in a lot of details. All right? The gospel accounts are full of things that you wouldn't expect to find there if they were being made up. For example, if you read John 20 very carefully, I'm not going to go into it now, but if you read it real carefully, you find there a bunch of details that are really weird. I mean, John talks about how he outran Peter on the way to the tomb. Who gives a rip? But John's writing the story, so he wants to throw it in. I think he and Peter had a kind of a rib thing, you know. Uh, I beat you to the tomb. But then John doesn't go in, but Peter goes in and mentions how he bows down to get into the tomb, which is archaeologically accurate, given the kind of tomb that Jesus was buried in. And then, then, Pete, then John spends a couple verses telling us, get this, he tells us how Jesus folded up his clothes. Read John 20, it's right there. That he looked in and, and some of the clothes was folded up on the slab that Jesus was laying, but the, the, the tunic around his head was thrown into a corner. A couple questions here. Number one, who cares? Well, his mother probably did. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
Is that good? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Are those clean linen? I mean, what happens if you get raised from the dead? <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, it's the old thing about wearing clean shorts. Never mind, you're not getting it. <laughs> Be sure you fold your clothes after you're raised up. Okay, sorry. But it's odd. It's really, really odd, isn't it? He folds, he's raised, he folds it up. And then he throws the, the, the sheet in the corner. Now, the other thing is this. What was he wearing? I mean, you would think if I was making up a story, I'd have Jesus resurrected with clothes on. But this person doesn't. And that's not the kind of thing someone would make up. I mean, it's a strange... I don't know what the resurrected Lord looked like, but, but I know this. His clothes was left in the tomb. He didn't bring them out with him. The gospel accounts, in other words, are replete with the kind of detail, the kind of self-incriminating information, the kind of stuff that always lends credibility to account. So you've got to ask yourself this question. How are you going to explain this if you think that Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead? The easiest explanation that explains all the phenomena is simply to say that they're telling the truth. It happened the way that happened. They, they, they put in the stuff because that's, in fact, the way the story unfolded. If you don't believe that, you have to either say they were hallucinating or you have to say that they were conspiring together. And those theories, ladies and gentlemen, just don't come close to explaining the facts. If you follow the evidence, and if you follow the inclination of your heart, you come to this conclusion. The story is true. The story is true. This isn't a piece of wishful thinking. It's not some mythology. It's based solidly in history. And folks, that one truth changes the whole contours of life. That one truth is the missing piece of the puzzle that when it's put into place, changes the whole nature of the puzzle. Seeing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead alters everything and puts a lie to the view of life that it's meaningless and absurd espoused by various forms of atheism. Because it means this. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it means that Jesus Christ, the claims that he made, the things he said about himself, the deeds that he done, that they are all true, the resurrection confirms it. It means this. That when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about someone who is utterly, utterly, utterly unique in the whole of history. We've had a lot of smart people in the world. We've had a lot of wise, insightful, spiritual people in the world. But they're all dead save one, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. I like the thought of Socrates, but he's still dead. And I, I find a lot of good in Confucius, but he's still dead. And I find Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, if he even existed to be a profound person, but he's still dead, and Buddha is still in his grave, and Muhammad is still in the grave, and I hate to break the news to you folks, but even Elvis Presley is still in his grave. But Jesus Christ is alive, amen. He lives forevermore, the grave is empty. Hallelujah. And that means that the Christian claim that in Jesus Christ we find the Son of God is true, and it means that the claim that God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ is true, and it means that the Christian claim that he died for your sins is true, it's proven by the resurrection, and it means that the Christian claim that you can be totally forgiven and have eternal life and have the longings of your soul met through a relationship with Jesus Christ are in fact true, the resurrection proves it. It means this, that there's a reason, there is a reason why every person in this auditorium this morning has longings that the world cannot give. You want a joy that the world will never satisfy, you want a peace that the world will never give you, you want a love that no human being is ever going to totally satisfy. You want a meaning that this world alone can never give you. Why? Well, the reason birds want to fly is because they can. The reason why cows like grass is because it's good for them. And the reason why you long for eternal life is because you were made for it. 
And the moment you admit that Jesus Christ was who he said he was and rose from the dead to prove it, not only do you have an explanation for why you long for what the world cannot give, but I want to tell you here this morning you have a satisfaction for it. Because the one who alone can make your life meaningful, the one who alone can give you the joy and the peace and the love and the power that you long for, is the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I implore you to lay hold of him and accept him as just that. Are you going to wager your whole eternity on the hope that this is not true? Or are you going to follow the reasoning of your mind and the longing of the Spirit and embrace the Savior? This morning I pray before you leave that you'll come forward. There'll be some people here who would love to pray with you. And a simple prayer of faith makes it all apply to you and it all becomes true. And you begin to walk with Him and you'll do so throughout the rest of eternity. I pray this morning if you don't know Him, if you've never done that, you don't leave here without doing that. For believers, I want to end on this note. If this is all true, and we believe it is, it means that this is the all-important fact in history and therefore the most important fact in our life. We can do a lot of things in life that are good and, and, and meaningful, in a sense. But this alone, when the curtain falls, only what we have done in relationship to Christ is going to last. What makes life meaningful? What makes our families meaningful? What makes our jobs meaningful? What makes every day of our life meaningful is when it is integrated into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then, but only then, does it take on eternal significance. So the question we've got to ask ourselves this morning is this. Does our, do our lives reflect that? Is Christ the center of our life? Or is it a Sunday morning thing or maybe a twice a year thing? Is Christ the reason why we get up in the morning, the reason why we go to bed at night, the reason why we live, think, and breathe? He ought to be, because he's the, he's the reason for our existence in the first place. Let the Lord deal with us to make him the center that he is.